from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Camino Mortera Martinez, Senior Research Fellow, uh, working on Justice and Home Affairs and based in Brussels. And as you can hear by my accent, I'm also the CER's resident Spaniards. A month ago, we had two outstanding researchers joining us. Elisabetta Cornago, who will be working on climate and the economy, and Zach Meyers, who will be covering competition law, digital markets, and many, many other things. Today, I'm really happy to have Zach joining this episode of the CER's podcast. Zach is in, based in London. He is very nice. He's perpetually tense, and he's got a very exotic accent. Zach, why is that? Hi, Kamina. It's great to be here. Uh, it's probably because I'm Australian. Uh, that explains the accent anyway. Um, I don't think it explains the tan, which shouldn't have survived six years in London. <laughs> right. That must be it. Um, I'm really hopeless with accent. Sorry. Um, so let, let's move back to, to, to some more serious stuff. Uh, you're a practicing lawyer. You've got ample experience on competition law and regulated markets. How is it that someone like you end up working at the CR? Well, I've always loved competition law because uh, competition lawyers always have to get their noses stuck into understanding how industries actually work. Um, I spent five years in Australia in private practice, and I mostly worked for Australia's largest telecoms company. Uh, it was a really exciting time because I worked on a deal with the government which wanted to build its own fiber network to give every Australian a next generation broadband connection. Uh, it's funny because it's more than 10 years later now, and that same issue is still the top of the tech agenda just about everywhere. Um, I also worked for the World Bank on introducing telecoms competition in small island countries in the Pacific, uh, which was important to build up that tan. Uh, <laughs> I eventually left Australia and I did a one-year exchange to a law firm in New York, and then I landed in private practice in London. Uh, for the past six years, I worked on developing the right economic regulation for different types of infrastructure like airports, payment systems, gas and electricity networks, telecoms, and of course, digital markets. Uh, this is such an exciting time as different countries are trying to understand all of the different problems in the digital sector and to come up with solutions. And especially for the EU, which is of course facing challenging questions about how to reconcile open markets with a lot of the geopolitical and systemic challenges from other parts of the world. CR has such a brilliant team. It's got contact with top policymakers grappling with these problems. And so it seemed like the ideal place for me to join so that I could comment on these debates. Right. And I think you surely will have plenty to comment on. As you say, um, these are really hot topics, um, not only in Brussels, uh, but obviously in national uh, capitals as well. There is, a, there is a debate about taxation that I'm not sure I understand very well. So perhaps you can guide me through it since you uh, published already uh, two pieces for us. And the first, the first one was digital taxation. 
So, so, so what's happening there? There is, uh, there's a discussion going on at the OECD with the US, the EU, uh, some big tech companies involved as well. What, what, what's, what's really happening there? Yeah, so many countries around the world have started introducing digital services taxes. And these countries, they're concerned because consumers are using the internet more and more to buy products from overseas companies. This is a problem because tax laws were never designed for this type of transaction. If you buy something locally, your national government can tax the supplier's profits because that supplier has a, a business down the road. The same isn't true if you buy something online from a company based overseas. And of course, during COVID, everyone has turned to online shopping and people are far less likely to go into a retail outlet down the road. So some countries have decided that this is unfair because they're losing out on a lot of corporations tax. And they've decided to tax foreign firms for sales that they make to local consumers in the country. Uh, not every digital services tax is structured exactly that way, but many of them are structured around that idea. Um, the OECD is involved because different countries have different types of digital services taxes. They, a lot of the details about how these taxes work are very different and that creates a lot of problems. So for example, for multinational companies, they might get taxed twice on the same income, for example. So the OECD is trying to work on consolidating all of this into a, a single uniform type of digital services tax. Right. And what about the European Union? So the European Union is recently proposed a digital levy, which is uh, one of the options it's proposing to raise funds um, for its own initiative so that it doesn't have to rely on um, funds being specifically granted um, from national governments. Mm -hmm. I've got to say, I don't like the prospects of that coming to force because all taxes at the European Union level or tax issues require unanimity of EU member states. A lot of countries, um, especially those that have um, large digital sectors uh, like Ireland, they are not in favour of a digital levy. So I don't think that it will come to pass, but it's certainly something that the Commission is pushing. Right. So the European Union is unlikely to be able to do much in this area. <laughs> the OECD is currently discussing about it. But I, I see from where I hear it, the, the big push is coming from the, from the US. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, for, for the uninitiated person like myself, that that makes a lot of sense since, you know, these companies we're talking about are mainly US-based. So, so what's, what's, the, what's the deal there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The US hates digital services taxes, and it's mostly countries other than the US which are pushing for them. And that's because it's US tech giants, um, or in fact, you know, US suppliers generally, that end up paying the vast majority of these digital services taxes. So the US has said that these taxes are discriminatory and it's threatened tariffs against a lot of the different countries that are trying to impose them to try to make it stop. However, the US has probably left it too late. These taxes started coming around uh, or they started arising during the Trump administration and there wasn't a really sustained clear strategy from the US about how to deal with it back then. And so now that Biden's in power, there's already so many countries that are proposing these taxes that the US option of imposing tariffs and starting a trade war just doesn't look very attractive for the US. So they're trying to think what is another way of at least reducing some of the damage. And so the US has linked it with another tax proposal, which is um, largely domestic, which is they want a minimum global tax rate. 
And the reason they want that is because they see a lot of US multinationals using tax havens overseas and depriving the US government of what they see as um, legitimate tax revenue. So the US can do that by themselves. So they can say that if you are a US company, but you don't pay tax on your income because you book it in another country with a low tax rate, then they can kind of impose a, um, a top up rate. But that strategy will be even more effective if they can get lots of other countries to also agree on a global minimum tax rate, because that will dramatically reduce incentives to use tax havens. So the US wants to push this idea of a minimum tax rate in the OECD. Um, and as a carrot to get other countries to come on board, they will accept something that isn't quite a digital services tax, but is quite similar. So it would be a tax that countries can impose for on, on some of the profits of multinational companies that, that sell products or services uh, in different countries. And do you think other countries will be okay with that? Because I'm thinking, you know, in the same way that the US wants to protect their digital firms, um, some countries in this region, uh, but also in others, uh, will be a bit wary of having a minimum um, corporate tax. So how do you think that's going to end? Yeah, so for countries like Ireland and Luxembourg, to, to name them, if you don't mind, you know, they're going to really struggle with this proposal and it won't be what they want because Ireland, for example, has had a 12.5% corporate tax rate. There's huge political support in Ireland for that um, because it's led to so much investment taking place in that country. And the benefit of, ha of having such a low rate will be diminished if the US goes ahead with this global minimum tax proposal. Uh, but I think that the US has been pretty clear for several years that they see these low tax rate countries as a problem. And so, you know, the writing has been on the wall for some time now. And the US is going to go ahead with or without an international agreement. And a lot of the companies that Ireland has attracted, you know, they are US companies. And so whether or not Ireland agrees to participate in the US proposal, those companies are not going to have the same advantages of being in Ireland that they did before. So in my view, these low taxing EU member states, you know, they don't have a lot of choice other than to participate in the proposal and try to mitigate the damage as far as possible. You know, Ireland has a lot of other advantages, you know, through infrastructure and having a highly skilled workforce, and it needs to rely more on those than on having a low tax rate. Right, thanks. I understand the whole tax question much better now. But there's another buzzword that's, you know, sometimes uh, we struggle to, to understand here in Brussels. There's a lot of talk about the DMA, the DSA, big tech, gatekeepers. Um, and I was just wondering, since you again wrote a piece about that, and I, I really want um, our listeners to understand how difficult it is uh, to write two pieces in your first month at the CR. So kudos to Zach. Um, for having pulled that off. Um, so since you wrote a piece about DMA uh, very recently, uh, which the very intriguing name of how, to, how the European Union should regulate gatekeepers, I'd like to understand basically what is this whole DMA thing and what are gatekeepers and, and why should we care about them? 
So competition authorities around the world have been investigating digital markets for a couple of years now, and almost all of them have found that there are a lot of problems in the way competition works in the digital sectors. So, for example, when you think of online search, everyone thinks about Google, and Google's had something like 90% market share for over 10 years now. So a few years ago, people, especially economists, would say, well, these companies might have a large market share, but in a year's time, some new competitor might come out of nowhere and deliver a completely new product and make all these firms, which we think are now well-established, redundant. So we saw that with MySpace, with BlackBerry, you know, with some other really big firms that once looked like they could never be toppled, but very quickly were. Sorry, are you saying that MySpace and BlackBerry are not a thing anymore? I think I think I should upgrade my my my, my, my devices really. Um, okay, sorry for that. Um, right. So we were at the time where economists and all the policymakers thought, you know, uh, let's sort of the hand of the market uh, do its job, um, and then um, we will have natural competition coming to these big, large technology companies. And as an example, we have MySpace, we have BlackBerry, you know, they didn't do well, so they disappear somehow, even though, you know, some of us have not realized. Um, but then there is another theory that seems to be emerging and that I think European policymakers uh, adhere much, much more to, right? Yeah, so a lot of policymakers have looked at this in some detail and realized that some of these big firms are getting so much data that, and they have so much um, by, way of, by way of profitability, they can essentially see what consumers are getting interested in. And if it's a small competitor, they can buy them up. Or they have these kind of self-reinforcing advantages. So for example, because Google gets 90% of online search, they have a huge database of user searches and they know what search results different users want to get. Even Microsoft's thing, and Microsoft is obviously a very large, well-capitalized company that has as much resources as anyone else to build a good search engine. Um, regulators such as the UK Competition and Markets Authority um, have found that Bing just cannot provide as good quality of service because it doesn't have as much data, because it doesn't have as much market share. So it's now perceived to be very difficult for other smaller, newer companies to really have a fair go at competing in the market. And the European Union wants to change that. That's right. So the European Union, as well as many other countries, are looking at moving towards regulation instead of relying on competition law. The Commission's brought several competition law cases against the big giants in the last couple of years. And I think it's fair to say that they haven't really achieved a great deal in terms of opening up the markets to more than one or two major players. So for example, the big case against Microsoft didn't achieve much and neither has the cases that, uh, that the commission's brought against Google in the past. So the commission is seeing this problem as being one of what they call gatekeeping. And I mean that these large tech firms, they control how smaller companies can contact consumers. And when they think of smaller companies, they're thinking a lot of the types of European companies that are often involved in the digital sector. So Europe has a lot of app developers and they need to rely on Apple and Google to get listed on mobile phone app stores, for example. 
Similarly, there's a lot of um, online merchants that rely on Amazon to be able to list their products and get them sold to consumers. So the commission wants to introduce some rules to make sure that these big players act more fairly and so that their markets can be more competitive. And at the moment, uh, the DMA is not a law yet, correct? That's right. It's just a proposal by the European Commission. So it'll go through the normal legislative process, which means it needs both the parliament and the council to agree to it being passed. And that's likely to take at least a year. But we've often seen with other big important laws like GDPR that it can take a lot longer than that. Uh, there's also a lot of lobbying by different companies uh, because there's a lot of profitability at stake, for, especially for many of the big giants. And of course, everyone has different ideas on how to achieve the right outcome of ensuring a more fair and contestable set of digital markets. Right. Well, in any way, that sounds like a lot of complicated lawyery things to untangle, even though I must say that I've read both your pieces and I found them very easy to understand and very to the point and also very provocative in a way. I think some of your thoughts round counter the established wisdom here in Brussels. For example, you think that the commission should take more time to decide who is a gatekeeper. How, how do you think um, the, the EU will end up uh, you know, deciding these issues? And, and what's your general view on, on the DMA and, and the gatekeeping question? So in terms of taking time to decide who is a gatekeeper, I'm pretty sure that uh, most of Brussels isn't going to agree with me. There's a lot of political pressure to move quickly and to outlaw conduct simply because it seems to be unfair. So Andreas Schwab, who's the parliamentarian who'll be shepherding the DMA through the European Parliament, mm -hmm. he recently said uh, in a seminar that if you don't know if you're going to be a gatekeeper, just give me a call and I'll tell you. So there's this real <laughs> sense that, that we just, you know, that we know the answer. I, I think that's understandable because, you know, the Commission has spent a lot of time um, and a lot of resources on competition law cases that have taken years and mm -hmm. just didn't get anywhere. So the DMA is an opportunity to create a structural fix by trying to make these markets more competitive for good. But um, I think if you want to create that type of fix, then you need some remedies that are going to be interventionist and that will change some fundamental parts of the way big tech operates. That has pretty serious consequences. And I think there's a real risk that it could do more harm than good if it's not done carefully. So I think it's worth taking the time to get this done right rather than just trying to get it done quickly. Right. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that brings me to my last point, because uh, I'm really excited that, that you guys joined so that I have more you know, material um, so that I can look clever at, at dinner parties now that they are going to be finally allowed to happen again. Um, so I'm just wondering what other complicated things will you be looking at and writing about so that I can look even more clever uh, from now to the end of the year, say. So, so there's a lot on the agenda in the digital sector. Um, I've got some background in payment systems regulation and I'll be writing soon on the EU's plans to create a European competitor to Visa and MasterCard. I'm also going to be writing on digital currencies and whether the EU needs to introduce a digital euro. Oh God, so are you going to be writing about something really odd that I read about today, the non-fungible token or Bitcoin 2.0? What are those things, please? <laughs> 
they're not exactly the same things. Uh, Non-fungible tokens supposed to be a bit more like a piece of art rather than something that you would pay for things day to day with like a, a digital euro. Um, mm -hmm. But they're both very interesting, but I'm a little bit skeptical about the benefits of both. Right, that's probably uh, for another podcast or another 25. Um, so yeah. Understanding Bitcoin, blockchain and all the other, uh, you know, funky hype stuff um, has been a, <laughs> a very steep learning core for me <laughs> the past <laughs> few years. But anyway, sorry. So you're going to write about digital euro and, yep. um, and what else? Um, I'll be analyzing the E's plans to achieve digital sovereignty. So uh, they've got plans to become leaders in everything from cloud computing to semiconductor production. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll be looking at how the EU is trying to level the playing field in Europe by trying to ensure that foreign companies don't get unfair advantages through foreign subsidies. There's lots of questions about online content moderation too. We didn't even cover the Digital Services Act. Uh, the Commission's efforts to stamp out tax havens, uh, probably more than I'm going to be able to write about this year. So some of this you might have to look forward to in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we, we the DSA will the Digital Service Act um, requires one episode for itself since it's going to be a, such a groundbreaking uh, piece of legislation as well. Uh, and so will artificial intelligence uh, rules, which I think is something you will be looking at as well. Um, well, to our listeners, you know, if you're worried that we are sort of squeezing uh, Zach uh, and he's working 24 um, hours um, on, 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 on a, you know, wide array, array of topics, don't worry, he's a lawyer. So, you know, he's, <laughs> he's okay <laughs> with that. Um, but anyways, thanks Zach for joining uh, me on your first ever uh, CR podcast. And I look forward to talking to you many other times. And I also look forward to actually meeting you in person once restrictions are lifted and we can all resume traveling. This has been the CER podcast. Listen to it wherever you get your podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.